Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back to The Messy Truth, conversations on photography. Today, I'm chatting to Dr. Jennifer Good. Writer, researcher, and educator, she is known for her fascinating work on the relationship between photography and trauma. As the joint course leader on the BA and MA photojournalism and documentary course at London's College of Communication, Jen works closely with students on discovering and honing their personal ethics through a deep interrogation of their own views, politics, and experiences, both conscious and subconscious, which in turn informs the work they make. This process feels particularly relevant to the work that many of us within the wider photographic industry are continuing to do to reckon with our own internalized bias and colonial legacy and all the ways in which that shows up. Jen is an incredible thinker, bringing so many powerful ideas and reflections about what photography is and how it functions within the modern world. I was born in the south of Ireland and then moved up north when I was a teenager. We moved around a little bit because my dad was a vicar in the church there. Um, So I lived in quite a sheltered, quite religious, conservative kind of world when I was younger. And I was the only person in my year in school who did art and that kind of thing. And I just kind of couldn't wait to get out, really. I couldn't wait to to kind of go and do the next thing, which ended up being um, art school in, in Belfast and then in Nottingham and I wasn't really sure what I was doing when I got there and I did I did quite a lot of different stuff I did textiles and printmaking and drawing drawing was kind of my main thing but I pretty quickly realized once I got towards the end of that course that I was much more interested in the theory than the practice so I wrote my um, undergraduate dissertation about the female nude and I just found the whole kind of world of feminist theory around the male gaze and 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 all of that kind of history so fascinating and I didn't know where it was going to go but I knew that I I felt most at home in that kind of theoretical kind of conversation rather than the the practical stuff and it went from there from an MA to uh, a PhD which was in the history of art at the University of Nottingham um which didn't start out as being about photography, but it kind of ended up being about photography. It started out as being something really pretentiously esoteric and theoretical about Walter Benjamin and time and, and things. And about a year in, my supervisor said to me, you're going to have to talk about pictures at some point in this thesis. And so I was kind of casting around looking for a set of images that would sort of enable me to talk about time and space in the way that I wanted to. And to cut a long story short, I ended up stumbling upon these memorial websites that have been set up in response to the 9-11 attacks. And I won't bore you with what the link was between my original proposal and those images, but what it ended up being about was the use of photography in response to traumatic events. And so I kind of went into a world of ideas that I never imagined 
imagined I would be working in, specifically uh, having a lot to do with psychoanalysis and just looking at the role that photographs play in the aftermath of catastrophic events in helping people to individually and collectively process um, violence of whatever kind. And from there, because so many of the images that I was looking at during that project were from press sources. I ended up working in this world of photojournalism and documentary photography, which is where I still am now. What is it about photojournalism that holds your interest? Because I know you're coming at it more, in my mind, and correct me if I'm wrong, from a more kind of analytical point of view to look at how those images affect and shape society. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So the kind of the, the the discipline that I'm coming from when I'm doing that is is called visual culture studies um, and it's really looking at what images do in the world and, and looking at the kind of reception of them and the ways that they function and the networks that they move through uh, and because I come from that kind of a space I think it's really interesting working um, as an educator in a photography space working obviously with the making of photography and with students who are learning to make photography is that I still find it much easier to talk about what images do once they go out in the world than I find it to talk about how to make good images, if that makes sense. The thing that I sometimes say is that I'm much more interested in photography than in photographs. I think I'm just so kind of endlessly captivated by the strange, mysterious entity of photography and what it is and and its processes um, that I'm very comfortable leaving my colleagues and other people in the conversation to talk about how to do it and how to make them and what a good photograph is. I'm I'm more interested in what those photographs do. And that's the, the role that I have in relation to my students' practice, I think, is to engage them in that wider conversation in the context about what images do uh, because it's so fundamentally and politically important for students to be visually literate and to consider just how high the stakes are of the images that they're making and I think all of us have um, a responsibility to be visually literate critical people if we want to engage in in society and this the stakes are even higher um for the photographers themselves the people who are making the images it's it's an even greater responsibility but i think when it comes to my interest in photojournalism in particular i think i just uh, i think one of the things that is very captivating to me is the really potent mixture of um, photography as this very subjective mode of expression, which is at the same time, it's always got this element of truth in it, which is kind of undeniable in some way. If photography was, if if it was a complete fiction or if it was um, completely real, then neither of those things would have quite so much power. But it's the combination of the two that, that gives it its kind of agency in the world in the particular way that it has um, and means that it's so powerful as a, as a mode of expression and as a way of interpreting the reality around us. Yeah, there's just so much to unpack in what you said. Um, I I mean, I'd love to start by talking a little bit more about visual literacy, because I obviously 100% agree with your point of view on this. And I think that it's really fascinating how your research is kind of unpacking the opinions and ideas and effect images have, sometimes without us even noticing on our everyday lives. And I think 
you know, there was a lot of discussion about visual literacy at the rise of the internet and social media because we all began using images as our primary tool of communication. But visual literacy is so much more than that. It's it's truly about kind of shaping who counts in society, who's seen, how they are seen, if they are othered, exoticized, stereotyped. It feels like we're kind of only just truly waking up to the endless nuanced ways that our privilege, our gaze, racism, inculcated misogyny have kind of shaped how we see, how we experience and how we create and commission visual material. Mm. And I'm curious, and I don't mean this to sound flippant, but if you had to kind of rate the average individual's visual literacy, where do you think people sit compared to kind of where they should do? Oh, that's a really interesting question, because I think there are uh, there are ways in which I mean, I don't know who the average 21st century citizen is that we might be kind of hypothesizing about. Um, but the average person is, in one sense, much, much more visually literate than we even realize ourselves. And on the other hand, um, maybe much less so than than they might have been in previous generations, meaning that, you know, we are all so accustomed, for example, or maybe not me, but people kind of a generation behind me are totally comfortable uh, scrolling through Instagram with their laptop open while watching TV and taking in all of these different streams of visual information at the same time. And then a bus goes past the window and you t- you clock the advert on the side of the bus and it's all happening so quickly and we're processing these things in in with a speed and sophistication that a few generations behind us would have found completely inconceivable and it would have been a kind of a an overload of, of visual stimulation but on the other hand what we lose when we kind of benefit from all of that speed is the process of for want of a better word just analysis so th- there's a kind of a a sense in which we're, you know, we're so savvy, we're savvy enough to to recognize, you know, Photoshop when we see it to, you know, much m- more and more sophisticated degrees every year. But there's much less of an appreciation of how the images that are around us all the time are shaping our inner worldview and our and our politics, we could even say. And I think one of the arguments uh, of this um, whole field of visual literacy is that a Western education system is very proficient from a very early age of privileging the importance of words in communicating ideas. And that doesn't mean that words can't be manipulated and ideologies spread through words, but we are given from a young age the tools to understand how that happens when it happens through words. We understand what simile and metaphor are, and then we get more sophisticated through our education about words to, to, to at least know what we're dealing with. Whereas there's no equivalent kind of education when it comes to images, except the, for the education that we kind of unquestioningly move through when we become more and more proficient with things like social media. And so I think it's definitely a kind of a double-edged sword, but I do you know, in my work as a as a teacher, I have conversations every single year with students who might say, for example, you know, why why should we analyze photographs in this way? Photographs should speak for themselves. Um, and, you know, sometimes people talk about how you can ruin images by analyzing them too much, et cetera, et cetera. And my argument in response to that kind of a statement is that when we encounter photographs, they shape our views in a split second. And all we're doing when we try to analyze that process is just slowing it down, slowing it down and unpacking something that is already happening. We're not 
over-determining what images are doing when we analyze them in great detail, like we sometimes do on our course. But we're, we're just trying to slow down and account for those very subtle ways in which images impact our politics and our ideas and our consciousness and our movement through the world. Does that make any sense? Absolutely. It makes total sense. And I think we can't put enough focus on this act of slowing down, slowing down your practice and really thinking about and engaging with these issues. This is part of my view about photography education and the value that it has, because, you know, studying photography as a degree or as a master's is not for everybody. Not everybody has the means or the inclination to do it. And of course, you and I can both name a hundred or more photographers who um, are doing just fine without having done a degree. But I think that what what we're trying to kind of foster in in the um the education process is a kind of a space so let's say a kind of a three year space to question and develop and interrogate and put through the mill what your politics and what your worldview are with the awareness that they will always show up in your images your politics and your worldview will always, one way or another, directly or indirectly, show up in your photographs. And it may not be easy to spot it or to articulate how it shows up in your photographs, but it does. That's the kind of space that we're trying to foster on a, on a degree course like ours, for example, which is the uh, a space to have conversations where you interrogate and you question and you really you you put your ideas about photography and the world through the mill to the to the point where you develop your own um, personal ethics because it has to be a personal set of ethics so that when you come to take a photograph in a given situation you don't have to stop and spend twenty minutes thinking about what is my ethical relationship to this subject your ethics and your process have been honed to the point where it can happen in a split second and I think that is the the kind of commitment that we're talking about when we when we talk about what it means to be a responsible user of a camera. Well, it kind of all comes back to that sort of idea of objectivity and neutrality, right? In in some ways, it's a, just a complete falsehood because, as you say, we all come from a stance. We all have a specific position, conscious and unconscious. And to think that that doesn't infiltrate how we communicate in all of the different ways that we do is pretty naive. And it's odd in some ways that... And I kind of was curious to talk to you about the photojournalist code of ethics because it, that, you know, some of these contradictions really lie in in that code, and it's it's, it's quite funny to me reading it again this year in the context of BLM and and what mm. that the discussions that have come up in the in different parts of the pho- photography community about that. And one of the things that I found so interesting is the tenant around the treatment of subjects. And so this idea that you treat your subjects with respect and dignity, yet the code of ethics gives you permission to intrude on private moments if the photographer believes the public need to see it. Mm. And it's just such a complicated, bias, problematic contradiction. And 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 it's late, in my opinion, it's kind of laden with it. But I'm curious for somebody who's been working in that area for such a long time, what your thoughts are. I think a code of ethics like that is just quite a blunt instrument. The kind of ethics that I'm talking about has much more to do with a sort of an inner compass of how you're going to treat somebody when you photograph them. And I think the the word subject there is is a problematic one. I think, you know, that, that kind of puts people into a relationship of objecthood in a way that is quite telling. 
it has much more to do with not just how do I treat the person who's in front of my camera right now, but what project am I going to make? And what am, who am I anyway? And what am I doing in relation to the world with my camera? And what am I about? And what am I looking for? I think the kind of ethics that I'm talking about starts there, which has everything to do with political questions of who gets to see, who gets to represent, who is seen, uh, and the kind of stereotypes that, that prevail within photojournalism and documentary photography, which are historically so damaging without necessarily doing anything as explicitly unethical as barging into somebody's house because you feel that the world needs to see them. It has more to do with how you see the balance of power in relation to who gets to see in the first place. You're listening to The Messy Truth, conversations on photography. I'm going to say something controversial now, and I certainly don't mean this applying to all photographers but in my experience in the last 12 years of working with photographers both in photojournalism and documentary but also just in wider aspects of the industry I see people holding on to things like the photojournalist code of ethics as the ethics I see them using that as their entirety in terms of how they come to the medium I don't see that many people doing the work that you're describing in terms of really drilling down into the responsibilities of what it means to hold that camera, to take those pictures and disseminate that work and all of their own internalised background experience bias that comes into that and what that means. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what drew me to your work and why I was so excited about what you were doing because it feels so necessary. Mm. But but yeah, I find it quite shocking that it's not being done as much as it feels like it should be. Yeah, I mean it it I agree with you absolutely and it 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 never ceases to amaze me really how urgent the conversations are again and again and again year after year uh, with every new group of students who I meet really because it's not really very fashionable to talk about the politics of representation you know this is something that's been around since the 1960s and and so I still find myself kind of having to return to it again and again despite that that, that students will often arrive on a course like ours and I, I well I guess I'm no longer surprised by doing it year after after year because it's been over 10 years now but I will need to every single time take students through the history of the violence of the camera essentially so talking through the histories of in particular the colonial gaze we talk a lot about that on the course and the kind of violent baggage of the camera which all photographers one way or another inherit no matter what degree of intersectional privilege we might have, everybody has a relationship to that history. Um, Everybody has a relationship to the ways in which photography has been used to, in, in very, sometimes very subtle, sometimes very symbolic, but sometimes very direct and visible ways being a tool of oppression and a weapon. And I find myself again and again having to tell these histories and point them out and point out what the relationship is between that and the present and the fact that, for example, it's still seen not only as acceptable, but as desirable as a as a commodity within photography to present people as exotic, to exoticize them and fetishize them and their cultures and to reduce and to stereotype and to essentialize and to exploit. 
And these histories need to be told again and again and again. And I think the reason why we're not seeing more change in the ways that people are represented in the wider culture, not just photojournalism, but fashion photography and editorial and advertising and and whatever else, even though there's a lot of good work going on, is that there isn't an awareness of those histories and there isn't an owning of those histories because this is a kind of a, a baggage that either you can grapple with and make yourself aware of so that you become part of the solution rather than part of the problem, or you can just bumble along saying, oh, well, a picture speaks a thousand words, a picture speaks for itself, I'm objective, I'm not biased, I'm not part of the, I'm just taking a picture of what I see in front of me oh it's so it irks me (laughs) it Mm. irks me um it's interesting one of the aspects of this that I wanted to talk to you about is this idea this sort of blurring between the lines of cultural appreciation and cultural appropriation Mm -hmm. because I think many photographers think they are appreciating other cultures when they're engaging in the type of work that you've described Mm -hmm. um and and the problem I think really arises, and I really love the way Bell Hooks talks about this, but in that way that photographers and writers to some degree claim to give voice to the voiceless. Mm-hmm. And I, I imagine that comes up a lot in your research and in your teaching, right? Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So in terms of cultural appreciation and cultural appropriation, I think, you know, this is where this this question of ethics becomes so complicated and it takes so much work. You know, th- th- this is why I have a problem with codes of ethics, I suppose, is because if it was so clear cut that there's just kind of 20 points and you follow them and you're good, then everybody would be a great photographer and clearly that's not working or happening. We talk in my classes about these histories and students are very often really emotionally impacted not you know not by the session not by my teaching but by you know by these histories essentially and you know that I can see very often very strong emotional reactions of defensiveness or anxiety or guilt or or sorrow and just just a kind of an, a, a dawning of like I'm saying the, this baggage and and how we're all kind of implicated in it to various degrees and so the question that inevitably comes after that is well tell me what to do then tell me tell me what the rules are so that I can not be part of this. Tell me, tell me how I can do it right. And I guess my privilege as the kind of educator that I am is that I'm the person who just gets to problematize. I'm the person who whose job it is to show these histories and then hand it over, to hand it over to the student, as well as to my colleagues who do more of the practical instruction, but to hand it over to the individual and say, there are as many answers to these ethical issues as there are photographers. And if it was formulaic, if it was easy, then there would be no point in in having a degree about it, let alone spending decades honing a craft. And I think, you know, sometimes people will also also respond to an awareness of these histories by saying, okay, well, that means I'm not allowed to photograph certain people. Tell me who I'm allowed to photograph and who I'm not. So I'm, I'm not allowed to photograph black people. I'm not allowed to photograph brown people. I'm not allowed to go abroad. And, and I, you know, my response to that is, hold on, hold on. <laughs> there are ways, for example, for a white person to do all of those things really well. 
it's possible to do those things really well, but it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of soul searching and thought and research and engagement and depth of commitment to the the people who you're working with, let's say, or or the subject that you're working on. And I think that's the difference between appreciation and appropriation, as I would see it, is that appropriation in photography is about othering. It's about photographing a person in such a way that the viewer is invited to engage with them primarily as a visual novelty, as a visual diversion or entertainment. Othering as a verb is a process of pushing somebody away and reducing them to a superficial spectacle. There is a way of photographing, there are multiple, many ways of photographing people who are different from us, who are other to us, literally, in a way that doesn't push them away and objectify and essentialize them, but rather complicates them. You know, you can you can approach a subject that has tended to be stereotyped and you can work to problematize those stereotypes. You can choose to have a particular relationship with that person or with that community or that cultural entity that problematizes and deepens and, and troubles and challenges the stereotypes that are all around us. And that, to me, is the difference between those two things, between appropriation and appreciation. The photojournalism and documentary photography field, it's so interesting in terms of the kind of people who are in it. You know, that there are, it's full of so many wonderful people and so many really misguided people, people with excellent intentions. You know, that that is something that I see all the time. Some, you know, that the intentions that many aspiring documentary photographers arrive with need to be held so carefully and gently by us as educators because we don't want to you know, we don't want to um, crush people's spirits or people's noble intentions. But at the same time, it's just a ludicrous thing to to, to claim as a photographer that you're going to be a, a voice for the voiceless. Because, you know, there are people whose voices have been repressed. There are people who are ignored. There are people who are sidelined and not listened to. But it's not because they don't have a voice. So, I mean, that's kind of semantics in a way. That's just kind of uh, policing people's language, perhaps. But I think the sentiment is so important. This idea that um, uh, you know, there there is a very particular kind of privileged photographer who's going to sweep in and, you know, insert cliche here, be a voice for the voiceless or expose injustice or or whatever it might be. And all of those things have a kind of grain of truth in them somewhere that if it's held carefully and interrogated with integrity can lead to really great work. But it, there's a lot of unlearning that, that often needs to happen there first. Yeah, I totally agree. I'm curious, you've, you've kind of called this this process that you were describing earlier that the students go through as a kind of critical paralysis mm. and I'm, I'm interested in how both you and your colleagues kind of support this emotional and critical journey that the students are on because as you said I'm sure it's a super heightened environment mm. confronting these issues. Yeah I mean this this idea of critical paralysis is something that sort of emerged in my my own uh, sort of private process of thinking through and reflecting on my teaching in the past few years and just looking at, at what it is that happens in this process. When we talk about representation, when we talk about privilege, these are really emotive conversations. And it's been so fascinating in the past couple of months to just see 
those kinds of emotional conversations spill out into the public sphere in such an incredibly dramatic way. And there's just been this great reckoning on the part of white people <laughs> across um, America and, and Europe, maybe in particular, of just kind of recognizing the significance of a lot of these histories and not just histories, but present violence and oppression. And it's a very emotional thing. And I suppose critical paralysis is a process that speaking in an educational context, students very often need to move through um, in order to get over the kind of uh, emotional hurdle of, of white fragility, for example, into a more productive space. So as I was mentioning earlier, very often we'll have these conversations about histories of oppression in photography and and the question will be, well, what do I do then? And what do I do with myself? And it can be very paralyzing. It can be paralyzing in the sense that, you know, photographers or, or young students, aspiring photographers will suddenly look in a whole new way at, at, at work that they've revered their whole lives or work that was the reason they applied for the course in the first place and could suddenly see it in a completely different light. And, you know, for example, one student said to me, it seems like the only way to not misrepresent anybody is to never take any more photographs. And that's the kind of paralysis that I'm talking about. And it needs to be moved through, not just because, or not least because, you know, you're on a course, you've paid your fees, you got to pick up a camera, you got to make work, you can't just stop. Um, and similarly for people who are, you know, invested in a career, it's a, a similar kind of dynamic can happen. So what do you do? And this really for me, is part of a wider conversation about teaching and about pedagogy in general. And you mentioned Bell Hooks earlier, and she's somebody who, for me, has been incredibly important in the process of, of recognizing education as a responsibility of a whole person to a whole person. So it doesn't make any sense to try to teach if I don't see myself as a teacher in that space as a whole person with feelings and emotions and a history and a body as well as a mind. And the same for my students to afford them that same regard. And so it does mean that we have to take seriously the emotional impact of these kind of threshold concepts that our students move through as they learn and the emotional fallout of those and the implications of those. But how do we hold those emotions without succumbing to white fragility? say and you know this this that's a question that's specific to working with white students. Um in that particular example, but you know, how do we, how do we confront these histories of violence at the same time as recognizing how emotional they are, while at the same time not uh, appeasing people and not, you, you know, we've got to, We've got to find a kind of a balance there. I think it's a balance that can only be achieved if speaking personally, if I recognize that fragility in myself, if I recognize that paralysis in myself, you know, as, as somebody who writes and, and speaks and, and teaches about images, I have to confront my own whiteness. When I'm talking about the violent whiteness of photography, I have to deal with that. I have to deal with that in a more productive way than just saying, oh, well, I have no right to speak about these things. So therefore, I'm just going to be quiet in case I make a mistake because I make mistakes all the time in how I talk about these things. But it's my job is, is one answer to that is just having to get out of bed and, and keep on doing it every day in the morning. But yeah, I think 
it's it's also a matter of recognizing a student's own capacity to build that ethics and to find that ethics and to navigate these questions and to just to it's another kind of really important principle of of good teaching is that the main thing that we're doing is holding a space for students to do this work themselves we just we just provide the conditions and part of providing the conditions is modeling what it looks like to be vulnerable in my own process of dealing with my history and fragility and those other things. Yeah, I I feel the same. And I, I've very much been going through that myself. I mean, as you, as you were saying, like this year, these ideas have spilled out into the wider industry and troubling that they haven't before, but they have. Mm. And, and that's been interesting and powerful and disappointing in so many different ways and you know I think that sometimes we forget to hold the commissioner accountable mm-hmm. um in in these sort of dynamics I think the photographer can sometimes bear all the responsibility and and the, I think the role of the commissioner is is vital and mm-hmm. and and all all powerful in some ways in some of these conversations in terms of who's telling the story how they're kind of masterminding the strings kind of behind some of this work that's being commissioned and it's been interesting to see how different commissioners have reacted as well and and one of the things that I was speaking to Shaniqua Jarvis about um, in a previous episode was this kind of rush now in the light of the Black Lives Matter protests of commissioners to suddenly start working with more black and brown photographers Mm -hmm. in 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 one instance that's fantastic but in another instance you know is this just a moment because they're not actually doing the work that we've been talking about and it's just you know they're scrambling to save face they're scrambling to stay relevant but if they haven't and are not kind of doing the deeper work in terms of their role and what that means, then you worry that that's detrimental, not just for the industry, but also for those black and brown photographers that are being picked up and celebrated in this moment, but perhaps won't have the longevity they deserve mm-hmm. if that work's not being done by the people who are commissioning the work. So, I th- yeah, I just think mm-hmm. the whole the whole cycle of the image production is is vital in this conversation. Yeah, I think that's really well put. I don't I don't have much to add to that really. I think I think it's um except except maybe that on a more optimistic note, I think that tr- <laughs> I mean it's it's um I almost was going to use the word trend there, which is obviously you know not the right word to use in this situation. But I think some people as you've just said are approaching it as if it's a trend. You know, a lot of kind of commissioning editors or or content producers of various kinds are seeing it as a bandwagon to be jumped on in order to stay relevant and it is being treated like a trend and you know i would like to think that even though that's a deeply flawed way of 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 change way of affecting change maybe some change will still come with it because the awareness of the audience is changing so much and you know i i think maybe i would also say that it's it's probably a generational thing like maybe um you know maybe we just have to wait a few years for a a new generation with a different kind of awareness to to get into those positions of 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 control and economic control and control of the visual environment so that things will change in the future but yeah i think you're i think you're absolutely right there is a danger of tokenizing people and using people in a way that is disingenuous for sure i see that too yeah thank you so much for going into that 
that experience and how you work with the students. I'd love to talk a little bit now about your research into the relationship between photography and violence and kind of how you came to be interested in in that because I know you you talked about the 9-11 work earlier and I know you've done some work into looking to the connection between photography and domestic violence. I'd love to hear a little bit about that research. I started out being interested in the relationship between photography and trauma that initially was focused on terrorism and the ways that photography is used to confront violence and to process it. And I suppose for me, this just keeps coming back to the nature of what photography is and what seeing is, you know, these very kind of fundamental dichotomies and questions about seeing and understanding and seeing as violence and seeing as healing and the particular roles that photography plays in these processes. Um, And so in my work about 9-11, for example, I was interested in how images can both cause harm in the kind of re-triggering of of violence, of, of visible violence, but then how those same images of the violence are very often returned to in an effort to confront and to heal. So more recently, my work has kind of turned towards a different kind of trauma, which is focusing on intimate partner violence or domestic violence. But in a sense, the kind of underlying issues are still the same. I'm still interested in ideas of of seeing and not just photography of domestic violence, but photography of trauma, photography as trauma. And so my argument um, in my work about domestic violence, which is still in its quite early stages, really, uh, in terms of my thinking, but um, I'm kind of working with the idea that domestic violence as a, as a phenomenon is essentially unphotographable. It's, it's, it's kind of unphotographable in one sense, which is that it is both endemic and hidden. You know, it's a kind of violence which is by definition behind closed doors and is not exposed to the light, is not seen. But in another sense, I the work kind of began for me with looking at that really pivotal set of photographs by Donna Ferrato that she took in 1982 that led to her really iconic photo book, Living with the Enemy. And there's one particular photograph within that work that was the photograph that started the whole process of that project for her, which was an image of a couple in their bathroom in New Jersey in 1982. And the man who's called Bengt is attacking his wife, Elizabeth. And there's this one photo, this one sequence of images where he is physically attacking her. And for a very long time, that was the only existing photograph of physical domestic violence in existence. It it was the only only one, because this is just such a notoriously difficult subject to access at all and to photograph. And in fact, it was accessed and photographed kind of by accident. Ferrato was there to photograph something else. But what drew me in particular to thinking about this photograph is that in that picture, in the central picture in that sequence, Banks 
fist is blurred. His hand is moving to strike her in the face, but his hand is blurred. And so I was really interested in this blur and this idea of blur on quite a a theoretical level. Admittedly, a lot of my interest in this subject is very theoretical because it's kind of driven in, it's driven by an interest in the aesthetic and material quality of of photography as much as by an interest in um, social justice and these instances of violence in themselves. Because for me, blur is a really interesting phenomenon within the history of photojournalism. Blur is this kind of, it's this thing that constitutes authenticity. So if we see blur in a photograph of violence, it's kind of a signifier that this is real, this is authentic, this is immediate, the photographer was really there, it was really happening. Because if it was less authentic, then the blur wouldn't be there. It would be perfectly composed, it would be perfectly sharp. So the blur is kind of taken to be a kind of a signifier of truth and authenticity in violence. And what it also means, though, is that in in this photograph of this very important, historically important moment of violence, we both see and don't see the violence. We see it because here is a photograph of a man hitting a woman in the face, but we don't see it because his hand is blurred and it drags through the frame in a way that is impossible to kind of pin down. So that's quite a kind of a theoretical interest in that photograph. It's quite kind of niche. And I I kind of um, go into um, a number of different ways of thinking about that blur and about what it means and and what it is. But essentially what I'm getting at is, is that this is just another piece of evidence of, of the invisibility or the unseeability of, of domestic violence, which is not just a theoretical issue. It's not an aesthetic issue. It's an incredibly urgent, important issue, which is more urgent than ever during the COVID-19 lockdown period, because as we know, incidents of, of reported domestic violence have increased so significantly that it's more uh, important to be talking about than ever. But the photographs of it still don't really exist. There's been one other uh, instance um, of a photograph of physical domestic violence happening in real time that has been seen in the public sphere since Donna Ferrato made her work. And so photographers have been, um, for a long time though, engaging with this subject, but in a very different way through kind of uh, still life and through portraiture and through looking at violence in a much more sort of oblique way or a metaphorical, symbolic kind of way. There are all kinds of ways of encountering these histories of violence and some of them in their aesthetic appearance are not violent at all. They're beautiful, they're contemplative, and, and there's they're they're very multi-layered. So I'm interested in those as well as as being interested in the images of actual traces of visible moments of violence being captured in the moment. It's such interesting work. Thank you so much. It's it's really fascinating to hear what you're doing, but also your deep passion for what you're doing and how obviously important it is. You make some really interesting points there, and it really speaks to a question I wanted to ask you about the portrayal of the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm -hmm. So you contributed to a dialogue around this in The Economist, which I thought was great, which I'll put in the show notes. Mm. But it, it, it kind of is exploring the ethical questions which have arisen about this coverage and how it pertains to the camera's intrusion on pain mm. and violence and how the story of disease is told. I'd love to hear your thoughts on some of the work that was commissioned and made, obviously not specifically speaking to a photographer, but just kind of how this work and the portrayal of this pandemic kind of sits within 
the history that you've been researching? Well, yeah, I mean, it's all so current. And in a way, I really feel like talking about current world events is not my strong point. It's so interesting. I feel so much more comfortable with things that that I have more critical distance to. But obviously, it's so relevant and it's so much on everybody's minds. And I think what I can certainly say is that there are really interesting parallels to observe. There are parallels to observe and there are double standards to observe. So I think, think some of the parallels are, re- are really interesting between um, some of the photography that's been commissioned, particularly in, in, in America, of really amazing work, which is so reminiscent of war photography. So the kind of parallel between a COVID-19 ward and, uh, and a war zone is really, to me, kind of present in a lot of those photographs. So those echoes and those parallels are really interesting, but the, there are double standards that are really interesting as well. And I'm certainly not uh, the first person to have noted this or commented on it, but in terms of speaking about, for example, just the medical gaze or, or, or the, the, the ethics of spectatorship when it comes to illness and death and dying, uh, and also then subsequently dead bodies, there is a, a kind of a double standard that has been around for decades and decades, which is racial in relation to the representation of death and bodies, that it's much, much more common and always has been in the British and American press to see the bodies of dead and dying black and brown people than than white people. And so there, you know, there have been a lot of people saying in, in response to a lot of these pictures of suffering or ill or dead and dying white Americans, where has been this level of dignity and respect when it came to Ebola, for example? Where has been where is this level of, you know, really kind of sensitive, careful photographing of people in 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 their most, you know, the most vulnerable moments of their lives? Why is that same respect and dignity not afforded to you know, black victims of Ebola or or of AIDS in, in you know in previous eras, for example, where is that? You know, it's been very interesting to see how it is possible to afford such dignity to suffering people in that kind of a situation when they're white. You know, it turns out it can be done. So uh, why hasn't it been done in those other kinds of situations? And there are exceptions, of course, to that. Um, it has been done well by some people, but the trend is absolutely one of, of a completely different set of standards for um, photographing white people versus photographing black people. Yeah, absolutely. You also spoke in the piece about the kind of historical significance of black and white photography and how it's often used in this context as a distancing measure, but also in a way to visualise pain and suffering and make it more palatable. Mm. I wondered if you could kind of unpack that a little bit and kind of talk about why it's kind of problematic. Well, it's a really subtle one, and and I'm not sure I would go as far as to say it's problematic. Um, But I think you know, it, it is interesting that a lot of that most high-profile um, work that's been made um, about, you know, th- these really in-depth um, investigations into COVID wards and, and morgues and so on in the United States has been done in black and white because we could describe it as a distancing measure, but but I think what it does do is create a kind of a timelessness. It creates a historic frame of reference that is maybe more palatable than colour 
might be. It, it kind of, I don't know, it, it, black and white has a certain kind of historical resonance. It has a certain kind of um, romanticism, a certain kind of elegance to it, practically speaking. And again, you know, to, I, I'm not a photographer, but practically speaking, I can certainly attest that when you work in black and white, most obviously you've got one less thing to worry about. You know, if you're not trying to account for color, if you're not trying to organize the color in a frame in, in a particular way. And so it's it's slightly easier to make really elegantly composed images because you're working with light and dark and geometric shape and form, just to put it in the most technical basic terms. And so those images, for that reason, tend to be easier on the eye, I guess. They, they tend to be easier on the eye kind of aesthetically, but they also have these kind of historic associations uh, of, uh, of a bygone area, of a particular kind of way of seeing. And in the history of war photography, black and white has a very particular kind of role to play because of the vivid redness of blood. And so photographing a war in black and white, the stakes are kind of different because the colour is going to be less visceral, the blood is going to be less kind of uh, prominent and it's going to be less of a kind of a violent encounter. And so, yeah, I, again, when it comes to something as current and as recent as this, it's difficult to have that kind of critical distance to think about what these images do and what the legacy of them will be. But there will be a legacy and there will be uh, a kind of a, a way of seeing COVID-19 and a way of, of thinking about it in a way of remembering it, which is absolutely shaped by the photographs and not just those kind of expensively commissioned photographs in the New Yorker magazine, but also the extraordinary way that COVID has changed the way that we all make photographs and use social media as a way of interacting with each other as never before. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. It's kind of too soon to talk about this. We're still in a pandemic, even though we kind of keep trying desperately to cling on to some normality. So it's going to be fascinating, I think, to see how photography's role and relationship with COVID-19 evolves over the next few years. I mean, who knows? But yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you so much for your time today. It's been so fantastic talking to you. Mm, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to The Messy Truth. You can find more information about today's guests in the show notes. Theme music is changed by Judd Greenstein from the album Awake and design is by Ruby White. You can follow updates on the podcast on my Instagram at Jem Fletcher or subscribe to my newsletter at jemfletcher.com. Feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts.